Today's podcast is about what prison life was like for me. And I'm going to talk about some things that maybe not a lot of people talk about openly about what goes on inside of prison. This is Sammy, the life technician. Thank you for joining me today. And today we're going to talk about a topic that not many people can or will talk about only because it's a unique experience reserved for special kind of folks in the community. Now, as many of you know, I I have been uh, out here in the world for the last almost 20 years now doing what I can to help in the helping field to serve people, consider myself a servant leader. Um, I do have a voice uh, that I've carved out in the world that does go international and all over the country. And typically it's just because I'm sharing insights and perspectives that may be one-off, but not to the point of uh, odd or um, weird, but more different way of looking at things that we have taken for granted. Um, And only because I believe I have not been raised in the factory of social workers or the institutions that spread uh, cookie cutter education. But instead of being a production line social worker, I've been a handcrafted social worker and am in many ways, in many regards, um, lucky to have the kind of teachers and select one-on-one development throughout the course of the last 30 years or so. Uh, It's kind of like I'm coming out of a monastery or a cave, so to speak, in a very real way. So let's get to it. Um, And one of the reasons I'm talking about incarceration today is, uh, although many of the listeners may not have been incarcerated, the chances that we know someone who has been or have a family member or a close significant other is more likely. And a lot of times we really don't understand what a person is facing or going into when they're being released back into society, much less what their experience inside there is. Now, when I started my change process, uh, it was at the very end of uh, prison and I was forced into a treatment center. And I want to talk about the modality, the treatment modality of the times. So this was mid to late 90s. Um, but certainly representative of what was going on maybe between the 80s and the 90s. Um, And I'm not criticizing, however, I will say this. The modality that was used on me was eventually found unconstitutional, maybe borderline cruel and unusual punishment. However, I will say that at the time, for me, it worked. Uh, And if you think about who it was serving and who it was helping, Let's say out of a thousand men that went through the program, maybe five of those men actually achieved some sort of change. We're talking about five people who had been written off as incorrigible, five people who had been written off as irredeemable. Um, And so when you think about that and you weigh that against the value of human life, the innate value of human worth, those five lives matter. And I will certainly say that through the people that have helped me, I have in turn um, helped many, many others, thousands, if not tens of thousands. I've had hundreds of thousands of listeners at this point. And so um, we'll talk about that in a second. So let's start with uh, prison life as a juvenile. Um, and prison comes in many shapes and forms. We do call them, uh, you know, detention centers, group homes, mental institutions, uh, foster homes, things of that nature. And to be honest with you, many of those facilities uh, are also, uh, you know, uh, incarcerations. They they serve as a place to hold someone against their will Uh, and there are certainly consequences for leaving those places and those facilities and regardless of their intention they do serve as holding cells for men and women or for young boys and girls at the time Um, many who are non-violent offenders but many who are as well many who have gone undetected as violent offenders and behind the scenes are and i'm only using offenders as the uh 
the current terms that are being used today in the federal programming for serving men and women incarcerated, juveniles incarcerated, um, and offenders because they've uh, offended the law in some way, shape, or form. So, in these experiences, uh, one of the one of the incarcerations that really sticks out to me was, uh, as a young boy, I started running away at 11, and it was a big deal for me to run away. Uh, I went from completely being forced into uh, isolation, almost in captivity at home, uh, was not allowed out. I was on a strict timer to school and from school. Uh, I never had friends over, would often be confined to the basement or the attic stairwell or, you know, just hidden somewhere out of sight when we had company, including friends and family who knew I should have been around. Um, never had uh, an experience of a sleepover or a playmate in the yard. Um, and while I played with my brothers, it, it wasn't, uh, and my sister, it was often forced upon me and all it would take is for one of them to tattle on me and it would turn into a, a beating of some sort. Um, it, you know, being starved and, and caged and, and humiliated, walking around in a in a layer of bruises from head to toe, open lacerations, um, patches of my hair missing from being sh shaken by the sides of my head until my mom basically scalped me from ripping out the hair. Um, you know, large contusions and lumps on my face and lips and eyes and ears and you name it, man. No wonder I was um, hidden from the world and, and invisible when I did engage in the, in the public. But at this particular time, I was a runaway. And being a runaway in those days and times, in the beginning, people looked for me. But after a while, people stopped looking for me. It was I was becoming very difficult to manage. And so I think it was easier for people to imagine that I wasn't um, I wasn't even missing. Uh, I, I wasn't even a person. I, I wasn't uh, an entity. And uh, what I found out many years later is that when you're written uh, when you're when you're called in as a runaway, they don't actively look for you. They, it's a it's a casual encounter, as they say. It's if they happen to run into you and they happen to run your name, and your name happens to be in the system, then they can apprehend you at that point. Um, so in many cases, I believe uh, no one was looking for me. I, they, people were turning a blind eye and were willing to let me kind of uh, to my own device out there. Um, now, by this time, uh, I have started to manifest uh, what people would say are criminal tendencies. However, I would say they were more survival. If I was stealing, it was to eat. If I was stealing, it was to dress myself. Um, if I was stealing, it was to kind of fit in with the crowd um, that was basically teaching me and educating me about the pathway through the streets uh, and how to survive out there, including, you know, pretending to be violent and aggressive, pretending to be uh, somewhat um, aggressive. You know, it's, it, I really wasn't those things, but I knew that I needed to emulate those things somehow in order to survive. And so stealing was not really for enjoyment and pleasure, although I soon found that it gave me enjoyment and pleasure. Um, if I broke into a house, in fact, the very first house I broke into on the second day, well, actually on the first day, we broke into a, an abandoned garage and made a clubhouse with some friends I had made who put me up on a couch with some candles and spray paint. And the next day we broke into a house and, and really, although it was enjoyable, it wasn't a crime of enjoyment or, or pleasure or for, um, you know, shits and giggles. It was really, we need to find things to help this guy, this young kid survive survive out here, clothes, food, blankets, pillows, toilet paper, stuff like that. Well, anyway, by this time, I'm, I'm, I'm being known for being a truant. I've dropped out of school in the fifth grade. I'm uh, running away habitually. And to be honest with you, I wasn't even running away habitually. I was just gone habitually. I, I never went back home once I started running away. I never went back of my own accord. I uh, wasn't willing to go back. And oftentimes, my parents could be talking to the police who have just dropped me off at the front door, and I'm already running out the back door. Parents started putting locks on the windows and, and doors to try to keep me in, but sooner or later I would find a way out, including jumping out of the second story attic window, things like that. 
But on this particular occasion, I had been picked up by law enforcement, um, taken to the detention center, and I was told that I was going to be taken for a psychological evaluation of some sort uh, down the street from the detention center. And so my father picked me up uh, and drove me to this, uh, what I'm assuming was a, a psychology or a psychiatrist office. And, you know, they started the assessment and it seemed very innocent and it kind of routine to me, you know, I'd go through the questions. I've been through a million intakes at this point. Um, and so maybe I'm 12 or 13. So I'm kind of, you know, uh, a little more street savvy, a little smarter, um, certainly not as smart as the people who were interviewing me. And so while we're in this thing, this doctor gets me to open up and I start sharing with him about the rapes, um, the beatings with sticks and metal pipes and wooden shoes and plastic brushes across my face, my parents holding me upside down and hitting me in my testicles with pipes and whipping me with extension cords like I was a slave, um, starvation, pulling out the patches, my overweight mother jumping up and down on my head, the, na the name she would call me, um, putting, making me put my hands in the, uh, in the uh, ringer of the washer where, you know, you used to, it was a, a, an old school washer where you used to have to feed the clothes through these little rollers that would squeeze out the water. My mother would make me put my hands in there, um, you know, making me swallow these peppers that would literally cause third degree burns in my throat and on my lips. Uh, the cuts and bruises, the missing, you name it, man. I talked about it all. And at the end of talking about this all, this doctor says something to me that just made me realize I needed to, to hide the most sensitive areas of my life from the world. I needed to put a very genuine part of who I am away. And he said, I cannot believe that any parent would do this to a child. And I knew at that point I was hopeless. Um, or maybe I should say it was hopeless, that I had nowhere to turn. For a minute, I thought someone was finally going to listen to me, and um, it just wasn't the case. So then here's the setup. He says, tell me, Sammy, have you ever thought about killing yourself? Now, by this time, you know, I'm, I'm about 12 years old. And I remember by the time I was eight years old, I had actually tried to hang myself in the basement. And then I remember when I was 11, when I stood over my mother with a knife contemplating killing her or myself, I remember that moment. Um, but since I had been on the streets, I really hadn't considered killing myself. Um, but, you know, which was several years later. And even then, I knew that thinking about suicide seemed like a very reasonable escape from the abuse and the harm and the neglect and torture that I was facing. So I said, yeah, I've thought about it. Now, from that moment forward, I don't really remember much. But evidently, unbeknownst to me, without my knowledge, without my consent, I was drugged. Um, and I believe they put some sort of sedative in a drink that perhaps they had given me. And I woke up, who knows how long later, I woke up in a mental institution at that time, I believe it was called Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. And I woke up in a padded cell, like a control cell with a little window. All the walls were literally padded. I didn't know where I was at. And don't ask me why, maybe it's just instinct, but I woke up asking for my parents. Now, that is truly a moment of insanity because I would never turn to my parents for any kind of help at this point in my life, but I did. And so I started knocking on the door and someone came to me at, through the door. I remember it was a little black nurse, a female nurse. Um, she said, I'm going to need you to quiet down. And I'm like, why am I in here? What am I doing in here? Where, where am I? Where are my parents? I want to talk to my dad. And all she kept saying to me at that time was, I'm going to need you to calm down. I'm going to need you to calm down. I said, okay. I'm not calming down. I want my parents. I want my dad. Let me the F out of here. What's going on? And this went on. And then I started kicking and banging on the door, trying to get attention from them because she walked away. And it was like, it seemed empty where I was at. And before I know it, uh, she comes back with two or three big giant men who come in 
uh, they, they warn me they're going to come in and, and, uh, and, and give me a shot. I have no idea what that means. I'm thinking they're going to kill me. Um, eventually, you know, I become combative, you know, of course, and F you guys, you know, where's my father? Let me out of here. And then they do come in and these men, you know, and I'm swinging and punching all 80 pounds of who I am, uh, trying to take these guys on and they do hold me down and against my will, um, they pull my pants down and they give me an, 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 an injection of something in my butt. And it felt like I had been shanked in my butt cheek and I passed out relatively quick. I wake up, I don't know how much time has elapsed, but I wake up and I am strapped to a gurney, like a hospital bed in the hallway. And um, there is a pretty little blonde kid, maybe around my age, this girl's, and she's trying to wake me up and she's talking to me, you know, like it's the most normal thing, just talking to me. And I'm like, where am I, you know? and what happened and I don't remember our conversation but I do remember saying I've got to go pee and uh, the nurse came back it was a different nurse at this point we get into an argument I start screaming and yelling let me go I start panicking because I'm strapped down at the ankles I'm strapped down at the wrist I'm strapped down at the waist um, and I'm trying to release myself and then uh, they clear the hallway, of course, and someone comes in and gives me another shot in my butt. Um, at some point, I must have uh, had some sort of medical reaction, negative reaction to all this medication they had me on because I believe I had a seizure um, and I must have been convulsing enough where I fractured or did something to my wrist that required hospitalization and uh, the, I end up waking up at a hospital with a doctor talking and I remember the doctor telling them like you have enough medicine in this boy to kill five horses and then I passed out again wake up at the hospital I mean wake up back at the place where I'm at I have a cast on my arm but I feel like a zombie I feel like I'm zombified I I'm awake, but I can barely talk. I can barely move. I can't move at a fast pace. I've got this cast on my arm. I'm in a strange place. And fast forward a little bit. So find out I'm in a mental institution. And uh, I've always had a high tolerance. I, I know that now looking back. And so eventually after the weeks went by, no explanation of what I'm doing here, uh, no visits from family or friends. I'm not really meeting with anyone in a one-on-one -on -one situation for counseling. I'm just being held. I remember building up some sort of tolerance um, to the medicine, but acting as if it was still affecting me, and I started planning my escape. I eventually escaped from that place, and on my first escape from this mental institution, which was no small feat, I actually took a young boy who I had met who was actually, his name was Stephen, little Stevie we call him, uh, who was actually in the same situation I was. He didn't know how he got there, wasn't even sure his parents knew he was there. And so uh, me and Stephen devised a plan to escape, and I was really the one planning it. And eventually we did escape. I, I got Stephen home. We walked 20, 30 miles back to home, got him away. And I was on the run for maybe six or eight weeks, and then they busted me again, and they forced me back to this hospital. And this time I knew the ropes, uh, played the game, uh, and eventually uh, uh, managed to escape again. And the second time on this escape, uh, no one came looking for me. There was never a warrant. There was never anyone. Uh, there was never a mention of me escaping from this institution again. Now that is one version of a juvenile's experience, and uh, when I when I finally started investigating my own life, I went back and found out that this hospital had also been closed under allegations of, <laughs> you know, misconduct, if you will, um, some years later. Now a few years later, at 17. Um, I've been arrested for stealing a car uh, because I'm from Illinois. Uh, at 17, you can be, you are considered an adult legally when you commit crimes, and so you're tried as an adult. And uh, here I was, this punk kid, you know, um, 
gangbanger, mouthy, typical Chicago young teenage boy, you know, and uh, not trying to minimize it. I was aggressive. I was a fighter. Uh, although I was aggressive and a fighter um, and I was willing to fight, we, you know, we often fought with fists, sticks, and knives, you know, not guns yet. And, um, you know, that was just kind of how we grew up. And, you know, I've seen some pretty bad things by now, but wouldn't consider myself what I became later, which was violent and hateful. Um, I think I was angry and, and using whatever physical power and, and, and content I could to, to express my anger, which was really a sense of betrayal, abandonment, and hurt, um, sadness. At 17, um, when I was in the county jail waiting to go to prison, um, I was triggered by my roommate to, you know, and, and I'm not blaming my roommate. I'm just saying there was a trigger there. As many of you know, by the time I was three and my sister was five, we are, our mother's brother, her youngest brother started raping me and my sister. Um, and so I was always very, uh, sensitive to that. Um, and I had a number of experiences since then. And, and now and that that's this part of the story I'm where I'm at where I knew that something was wrong with me, but I was powerless to stop it when it came to that issue. But I knew it sent me into an immediate rage. And so my roommate at the time uh, was a, worked at the Navy base um, in, uh, in Grays Lake, I believe it is, or North Chicago. And um, turns out my roommate had been raping his five-year-old daughter for a number of years and uh, I had read through his transcripts one day when he wasn't around and he had said some pretty sickening things that just enraged me like he blamed his five-year-old daughter for being seductive and having seduced him and his wife into this and I spread the message of what he had done and um, that night uh, me and several other inmates uh, beat this man within an inch of his life and uh, the next morning, uh, the guard saw he was pretty, uh, pretty beat up. And of course, um, you know, someone told and I took the weight for it, said I had did it on my own just to save everyone else the trouble. I was already going to prison. No big deal. And the guards had actually secretly told me that um, while they couldn't let me get away with it, there wouldn't be any consequences for it. They, but they would have to put me in segregation. But I wouldn't have to worry about dealing with any charges or new conduct reports and like that. So they put me in a unit by myself, uh, and and I was basically there until they put me on the bus. Now, just ironically, they happened to put me on the bus getting transferred to Joliet, which is in Taken, Illinois, with the man who we had just beat up a few days earlier. And so I, of course, started announcing on the bus what we had done to this guy because he was beat up and people were asking. Of course, I was more than willing to say, hey, this man beat up this or uh, raped his own daughter. And so the, the whole bus turned on this guy and uh, he knew he was going to have a, a, a welcoming party. Uh, that would been a lot. That would be a lot worse than what I had done to him at the county jail at this point. Now, fast forward to the prison. On the way to the prison, I'm sitting next to this guy who happens to be in the same gang I'm in, but who doesn't know me. And he starts kind of prepping me for what I need to walk into, what I'm going to go into. And he starts saying, you know, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to identify who you are. Don't back down. Don't show any weakness or fear. Doesn't matter how many of them are or what they do to you. You don't stop fighting. And so I had this in my mentality. I took it as a mantra. And so when I get off the bus, um, Maybe I was spared because of what was going to happen to this guy. So as soon as we get to where we're going and we have to go shower and do the intake thing, they sexually assault and physically assault the man who uh, who had done this to his daughter. And at the time, I relished in it. I felt felt very powerful that I in some way had facilitated this event. Uh, and I felt like he was getting what he deserved. Um, and that may have spared me uh, the initial attack, you know, the test that I was supposed to go through. Um, but this prison was now my my introduction to this prison was that assault and this prison was on a food strike. Uh, and so getting off this bus, I see someone getting beat up and I also see the inmates organized um, and not not allowing the other inmates to eat and protest of something. But because of my conduct previous, I was sent to uh, what's called a, a gladiator school, which was Sheridan. And that's where they sent all the young, big mouth, aggressive kids like myself to. And we'd kind of be sorting it out on the yard or in the, in the cell halls as gladiator school, you know, kind of your development and training. And there you're also be 
being taught how to conform to the inmate prison law. You know, inmates have these rules and laws, that, and, and so you kind of go there to get trained by other inmates on how to behave, and um, it's pretty violent. It's pretty violent, and, and but I found that to be thrilling, and so I was more than willing to participate. But eventually I did too much and took it overboard, as, as I often have done in the past, and they sent me to uh, another prison. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm on the north side of Illinois. Now they're sending me to southern Illinois. And they send me to Shawnee Correctional. And I'm not even off the bus a good hour. I'm on the rec yard. And an officer approaches me, says something I didn't like. And I get into it with this officer. I end up in the hole. And there I met another gentleman by the name of Mousy, um, who was on the circuit. And that means that, you know, you're either so violent or threatening that they move you around in seg from segregation to segregation with little to no notice so that it can disrupt any sort of communication or power and control that you might have. So, but I had met Mousy. Mousy told me I'd be going to Menard. He told me what the climate was like, gave me the rundown, told me how, and gave me numbers. So it was kind of like I leveled up meeting Mousy. Um, Gave me some numbers of some powerful people that I could contact him through. Um, get to Menard, and there is a lot of racial tension. Now, in Illinois, most of the prisons are run by black and Hispanic gangs. We're very powerful in these gangs, very powerful in these institutions. Um, however, those rules and laws I mentioned earlier govern the climate and are meant to keep order and, and people as safe as possible, although you know murders still happen inside these prisons routinely, but they're normally sanctioned. They're not normally just uh, off the cuff, you know, uh, spontaneous. They're normally planned and sanctioned by the inmates themselves. And the guards are, are either on the take or in fear of their life, so they don't get involved. They just kind of do what they have to at the very last with our permission. But at Menard, Menard was uh, the one stronghold for the white supremacist groups. Um, and, uh, you know, they controlled the majority of the power and, and, and resources um, there. But the Hispanics and the blacks also had some of that, but were outnumbered, you know, significantly. Um, but the same rules applied at this prison that applied at all the other prisons. But we knew we were outnumbered. But there was this tense... Um, understanding of how we would participate and behave with one another. However, the racial tension was was evident, and you knew that in this particular place, the administration, the guards were siding with the whites for the most part, although we had others who we so-called politicked with, who we could pay and influence to, you know, for special favors and privilege as well. Now, on this particular day, a race riot was brewing and did uh, did happen. It did happen. And uh, a white man had stabbed and killed a black man. And a lot of things facilitated this power shift, however. So there was this, uh, this very powerful um, gang leader of, of a black gang who said, you know, we can't put up with that. We need to respond. And so basically we knew this was going to be war. Um, now I'm 17, going on 18 soon. I'm 90 days from going home. I'm supposed to be going home in three months. And I'm in a maximum security prison. On death row is John Wayne Gacy and Alton Coleman, who had killed a neighbor of mine. Um, you know, John Wayne Gacy is this well-known serial killer of young boys in Chicago. My friends have 45 years, triple life, double life, uh, life plus 100. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a baby here. Uh, walking with men and women who, uh, or I'm sorry, not men and women, walking around with men who are never going to see daylight. They're, as we say, their parole board hasn't even been born yet. Um, however, I was, uh, I would have told myself at that time I was loyal and dedicated. Um, but what I know today is that in hindsight, I would never dream of letting anyone think I was afraid or scared, which is not the same thing as loyalty or love. We were told to arm ourselves, in which we did, but again, we're being outnumbered. There's only like 20 of us in this particular cell hall, um, and there's probably 50 to 60 whites in this cell hall, um, and it's pretty much the same throughout the prison, you know, where we're all broken up at. There's, we're outnumbered quite a bit. And so we were ordered to basically, um, when the shooting started, to start fighting and attacking the whites. And so we did. Uh, the riot kicks off. There's probably six or seven of us taking on about 30 whites. We're all armed. I have two shanks. 
on me. Um, most of my friends had knives. My job was to secure one of the leaders who was with us in this fight. And so I'm doing, I can't just look out for myself. Now I've got to look out for him. Uh, the fighting starts. Uh, one of our members, a black man, broke off from the group and went and started stabbing a white dude who had separated himself from his crowd. And that started the fighting inside the cell hall. But the fighting had started simultaneously throughout the prison and attacks like this were now everywhere. Um, you know, there's probably 1,500 inmates um, in there. You know, the cell hall I was in had 100 cells per tier. There's five tiers and they're doubled up all the way up. So, you know, you can imagine how many people are in there. Now, the fighting starts and we're all going at it. We're all trying to kill each other here. We're all in this, you know, uh, cement and steel long hallway cage fighting in this corner. Our backs are against the wall, which is the best position for us because we don't want them to get behind us and flank us. So we're putting ourselves in that corner to try to fight outwards. But then the guard comes in from outside, and, and in this particular prison, around, you know, about three stories up, they have what's called a catwalk. And in this catwalk, they can go in and outside the building, and they have weapons, assault rifles, and shotguns. And so he was shooting outside just moments before, but came inside to start shooting inside. And so when he starts shooting, everyone inside the cell hall, including my friends, scattered. Now... I somehow got pinned in the very back of the cell hall while all my friends were able to run clear of the group and escape far away. I'm now pinned between uh, this back wall, the whites, and my friends are on the other opposite side of those whites. Now, I knew my time was limited because now that we're not fighting, the guard is going to go back outside and start shooting soon. And as soon as he's doing that, these whites start coming at like they're going to start attacking me. And there's this rain of metal chairs and mop ringers and spears being thrown at me at you know the first wave of attack. And I'm just doing the best I can to defend. And then eventually um, they start attacking me. And I am there fighting the best way I can. I've got a knife sticking out of my arm. I can see that, but I don't feel it. And then out of nowhere, man, a friend of mine who I barely knew, just kind of an acquaintance in prison, he came out of somewhere. He wasn't even a part of the original group. And he is fighting with his fist. There's a black guy named New York. And he comes in and he is attacking these whites with his fists. They're all armed. I'm armed. And now I just kind of double my efforts down to try to make it to him and fight back harder. And then all of a sudden, boom. But it wasn't the boom that got me. It was the instant hole I saw in New York's side. His his left side, his kidney was open. His, it was like, like, not his kidney, but where his stomach is. And it just opened up all of a sudden. And I felt my back on fire. And I saw all the whites kind of stare in shock. But that guard cocked again, and you could hear it come in, and they ran. New York fell. I'm covered in his blood, my blood, and who knows who's else's blood. And I can hear the guard, but I can't hear him. I hear him saying, get away from him. Don't touch him. And without looking, I know he is drawing his weapon down on me. But I am numb. I'm in, I know now that I'm in shock. And... Um, I knew instantly New York had put his life on the line to help save me. A guy who barely knew me, why most of my friends weren't anywhere to be seen. And I knew I owed it to him. 17-year-old kid, 90 days from home, making a life or death decision. And uh, I don't remember how or where, but I got a pillow. You know, maybe somebody threw it out. and I, Maybe I screamed for something. and But I had a pillow and I put it on him. And uh, I knew if that guard left, me and him were going to die here. We were going to be stabbed to death. And so I grabbed him by his wrist. And I started dragging him the 150 cells the other way. And I could see these white supremacists waiting, biting at the, at, their, at the lips to try to get to us. But the guard was on me, threatening to shoot me the whole time. And they weren't about to come out. And that, that played into my hands. And so... Like a scene from Freddy Krueger who's dragging a body and leaving a trail of blood. That's what it looked like. And I dragged him all the way. No one came to help. And I dragged him to the other end where was the entrance and the sergeant's cage where, the, where all the guards were hiding. And then by the time I got down there, um, a superintendent who was like a warden came out and was like, 
got to go back to your cell. And I'm like, no, we got to get him to the hospital. And uh, the superintendent is surrounded by an armed, you know, armed guards who are protecting him, who have now surrounded me and New York, who is screaming and asking for his mother, telling me to tell his mother he loves him, that he doesn't want to die to help him. And uh, I said, we got to take him to the hospital. And, and the superintendent looks me straight in the face and says, no one's coming in or out. And instantly I know that's a death sentence for my friend. He's, there's no way he can survive this. And I said it one more time and he said, no, it wasn't going to happen. And I reached for a knife that I had tucked in my waistband. But my hands were so bloody that when I grabbed the knife, it just slipped out. It just, there was no grip. And so here's this like 24 inch shank I have made out of steel that just falls on the floor and makes like the world's loudest metal on floor sound clank 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 everyone looks down and then they look at me and i have this oh shit look on my face and um i knew it was on and i i hit that superintendent harder than i hit anyone before with the intention of trying to kill him and uh the fighting started they couldn't shoot because the guards were all around me and that strike incited the rest of the inmates who were near us to jump in and attack the guards. And we attacked the guards. We overpowered them. We took their keys. And we forced our way outside through many gates and finally made it to the hospital, at what we call the HSU Center, and dragging New York all along. But by this time, he's quiet. I'm, su I'm sure he was dead. And uh, we left him at the hospital. And then we gathered and eventually were corralled back to ourselves that day. In the middle of the middle of the night, they came and got me because they knew I had this shank, you know, this large wound in my arm. Um, they came and got me, took me to the hospital. And there I happened to cross paths with the superintendent I had hit. His whole face was wrapped in a bandage. It was huge. I found out I had broken his jaw. And when he saw me, he mumbled something to his team. And they grabbed me and they shoved me onto the elevator. And they beat my ass for like a good 30 minutes with sticks and boots and shields. And I didn't feel anything. I was satisfied. They take me to the hall and I spent the next 28 months in segregation where I spent five days out of seven in a cell with no movement. And on the two days that I got to come out, I had 15 minutes for rec or to take a shower, not both. Eventually I was released home, straight, almost straight from the hole, but from a place called uh, Stateville. And a few, they, it was a surprise release. I didn't even know I was getting out. They just came and got me one day and said, you're going home. And I walked out of that prison like that. In fact, I was so high and drunk when they told me I was my release, my friends had to physically carry me to the bus to put me on there. I was in a blackout state at this point. I almost died, you know, once they took me to Chicago. I had missed my stop, ended up on the south side, and was quickly surrounded by a group of, uh, of black gang members, young pit bulls like myself. And, uh, man, thank God I had the gift to gab because I started dropping names once I found out what gang they were in. And I sure did know their leaders, and I knew their, you know, all their board members and their five-star generals, and I was dropping those names. And instead of killing me, they protected me until I got back on this bus. I told them about what everybody knew, anybody connected knew what we had done in the prisons, the riots. So I had made a name for myself. Seven months later, I'm back in prison, this time for violent gun crimes. I had committed uh, six armed robberies. Um, and because of my prison record in Illinois, even though I was sentenced to six years for those armed robberies, which was a blessing, I was still classified as a maximum security threat and sent to a prison in Wisconsin called Wapan Correctional. And upon arriving at Wapan Correctional, within one hour of my arrival, I had violated so many rules that I had earned two years of segregation at this point within the hour of walking into the door. And I saw that as an act of war and, um, and behaved accordingly. So I probably spent the next two, two and a half years in segregation. 
um, was disruptive and violent and aggressive as much as I could. And um, eventually, eventually, uh, I was sent to another mental institution for the Department of Corrections. There I resumed my violence. I, I played the game. I went through treatment, um, although I knew it wasn't, I had no intention of changing. And then soon I did what I had to do there, and I was released to another medium security prison where within, again, 90 days, three short months of going home, I attacked four more guards. Actually, I attacked one guard and three other guards who were trying to help him. I ended up assaulting as well. Um, and again, it triggered... I was triggered because this particular guard, while yelling at me, you know, giving me orders, had called me a racial slur, and that reminded me of where I had just come from, and um, I knew then I was going to attack this guard. And so when I did attack this guard, some of his friends tried to help him. They ended up getting hurt as a result, and then um, I was eventually charged with four more counts of in battery for the second time by an inmate. And then instead of spending the two years that I was supposed to do, I spent seven years in prison. Of that seven years, I was transferred maybe 16 or 17 times, spent about five years in segregation as a result. And it was even to the point where um, on one occasion there were emergency transfer for me because an inmate feared for his life, and rightfully so at that time. When they tried to ship me to another prison, um, they were letting me off the bus to go into this prison. And when they saw that it was me, the security director and the warden both said, no, that man cannot come to this prison. We're not equipped to handle him. And they put me back on the bus. They put me back on the bus until they could find me a, a suitable place, a, a place secure enough to, to manage me. Um, and I will tell you that it, although on one level this was kind of like a, another notch in my belt and would go down in the history of with inmates, on the other hand, it was also very reminiscent of the times my parents gave up on me and wouldn't even bother looking for me. I had been kicked out of the world and now I had no place to go, even in the place of, of my own um, exile. There was no place that would take me. Fast forward to the streets now. Here I am. And I'm going to tell you why this is relevant. Because I got into this this program that was uh, I was mentioning very early on in this uh, session here. And this program was based on a criminal thinking model. That if we could identify our criminal thinking errors, we could come up with criminal thinking corrections. A counter narrative, if you will. That's not what they call it. It's what I call it today. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as such, they're taught that the one, the, one of the first criminal thinking errors you learn is called a victim stance. And it's when the criminal believes that he is a victim. And that's how he justifies the crimes that he commits. And I very much believed that. I, when I read that criminal thinking error, I said, yep, that's what I have done. But almost everything can be associated with a victim stance at this point. So, for example, if I start um, talking about my wounds or my trauma, I could be perceived as taking a victim stance, which is threatening because it means that I could then start to commit crimes justified by my victimization. So, in essence, I was taught never to talk about my victimization because it was a sign of taking a victim stance. It was a criminal thinking error. You can't do that. And so, rather than talking about anything that hurt me, I had to put it away. And I understand why, because at this point, it doesn't matter what hurts me because I'm hurting other people. And if talking about that puts me at risk of hurting other people, then it makes sense not to talk about it. And I successfully completed this program believing that. Why is that relevant today? Three years ago, day after Thanksgiving, my ex-wife asked me for a divorce. We had significant family problems. We couldn't agree to raise our kids in the same way. There was a uh, we both made a lot of mistakes, but let's put it this way. Um, enough had been enough, and I finally agreed after 12 years of marriage to separate. And I had always fought to keep us together, no matter how many times she asked to divorce. But let me tell you why this is a relevant issue. It's not about the divorce. 
When she moved out, I went from having a family 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to having my children, only two of the four children I had raised, with me 50% of the time. When my kids were not here, I started to experience the same mindset that I experienced when I spent time in the hole. Hour after hour, night after night, day after day, month after month, year after year. Of the 16 years I've done incarcerated, I've probably spent about 12 or 13 of those in segregation. And I was losing time. I was removing myself from the world. I sat in the dark. I ate only a little. What I've learned today about this is that although I put myself in all of those situations, I was now reliving the trauma of my past, the trauma of my incarceration, the trauma and long-term effects of long-term segregation that I didn't even know existed inside of me. And up to this point, I've been successful professionally. I'm helping everyone in the world. I'm all over the country. I'm all over the planet. People listen to my voice. And here I was. I had bottled, put a lid on this experience uh, that I was controlling and containing that now I couldn't help but had been triggered by the isolation without my family here in this house. can tell you today it's much better. I've, I've chosen to face it and I've undergone some, some very unique and groundbreaking path creating treatment to help manage that. But instead of calling it post-traumatic stress disorder, we call it post-traumatic stress injury. This was something that happened to my brain as a result of my experience. It was a physical injury. There's, there is a physical place where this trauma existed. And this doctor reached out to me and we did some things together. I'm not going to get into that right now that have since helped me eliminate and vastly reduce the symptoms that I had been living with all these years, but never allowed myself to talk about. I never wanted to see myself as a victim because I was taught that if I did, I was at risk of committing crimes. And that may have been what I needed to hear then, but I can tell you I've outgrown and outlived that stance. Today I can talk about my trauma without feeling that it's going to put me at risk or lead me to committing an act of violence or crime against someone else because of that. Doesn't mean that I don't get overwhelmed, doesn't mean that I don't have those feelings or thoughts, but I've learned to manage that, I've learned to change that. And as a friend pointed out to me, he said, Sammy, how many times have you felt like you've, you've gotten right up to the line where you might cross it? And I said, a million times. He said, how many times have you crossed it? I said, never. He says, then at what point do you accept that you've changed? Point taken, my friend Marcus, who is a mentor and a helper, one of my healers, one of those people that helped hand grow me as a social worker. And so today... By being able to talk about my trauma and face my trauma and seek help and therapy for my trauma and treatment for my trauma, I'm able to talk about it without losing myself. As my friend Marcus said, you cannot exchange one cage for another to call it freedom. I was afraid to let this trauma out because I was afraid I couldn't control it the way I could never control it as a child, as a young man, as an adolescent, as a, as a 29-year-old. But I can. I can face it. I can face that hurt. I can manage that hurt. And it's been healing. And it's helped me expand rather than contract inside of myself. I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm not trying to make excuses for my path. I take full responsibility for that. But let's think about these experiences the next time we're ready to judge someone 
about what it's like when they are released from prison and what they might be housing, what they might be holding, what they might be containing. And maybe it helps explain a little bit about why people recidivate, why people go back, why people don't get it right. It's not necessarily because they don't want to change. Most of us don't really know how to change, and we, most of us who are helpers don't know how to help people change. But I've been able to apply a lot of these lessons I've learned, and when I was running my reentry program for three years as the director, we had a 6% recidivism rate each of three years with high-risk so-called offenders, including sex offenders. We were, I was told by the Department of Corrections sex offender unit that we had lowered the revocation rate for sex offenders by 70% through the modality of treatment that we were using. And to be honest, the secret sauce, compassion and empathy, and a lot of skills, don't get me wrong, a lot of skills that I've learned. But understanding that it's more than just a desire to change, and there are some real physiological, psychological, emotional, spiritual, mental, cognitive things to face and overcome and address. I'm grateful for my treatment, but I also know that stuffing parts of ourselves away is not the way to do this. I'm going to wrap this up here, and I hope that this has provided you with some insight about what at least what I've been facing and what I've overcome and what I am using to help other people overcome. And I'm hoping at the very least, if you're a listener who may not relate with the incarceration side, but knows someone who can or who has, that you understand a little bit more about what we're facing and it's not to say that we didn't bring it on ourselves and maybe we didn't deserve this treatment and who am i to say any of that about myself and what i went through i'm just saying that when i got out there was a very real effect i have to live with and repair and that i needed help with in order to pass it and i contained that hurt for 14 years before i finally got treatment for it didn't even know that I was doing that until something came along to trigger it. And because of that, I'm grateful for my experience. Because without that trigger, I would have never really known this genuine part of myself and how to let those pieces out that I put away so many years ago. Because I was hurt and didn't want to be hurt. Thank you for listening. This is Sammy Rangel, the Life Technician.